Hello, and welcome to the Cartoon Brew Podcast. I'm your host, Jen, and today I have an interview with two of the creative leads of the new Warner Brothers feature, Scoob. Director Tony Cervoni and animation supervisor Bill Holler were kind enough to join me the day before Scoob's May 15th release. It's now available to rent and own on video on demand. And just really quickly, I wanted to just thank everybody who listened to our first episode and those who gave us feedback to keep on improving. I really appreciate it. Director Tony Cervoni is no stranger to Hanna-Barbera, as you'll learn during our conversation. With over 25 years in the industry, Tony got his start with Warner Brothers on Tiny Toon Adventures and Animaniacs as an animator and story artist. From there, he became the director of animation on 1996's Space Jam, which is super exciting for me because Space Jam. Tony's worked with frequent collaborator Spike Brandt, helping create new iterations for long-standing characters such as the Emmy award-winning Duck Dodgers, The Looney Tunes Show, and Scooby-Doo Mystery Incorporated, as well as several features such as Scooby-Doo Camp Scare. In addition, Tony produced six theatrical shorts, including Daffy's Rhapsody and I Taught I Taught a Putty Tat, in which the Looney Tunes characters were computer animated for the first time and which used the last of Mel Blanc's vocal recordings. He also produced Joe Barbera's last Tom and Jerry theatrical short. Animation supervisor Bill Holler got his film career started in VFX at Giant Killer Robots, working on films like Blade Trinity and Scooby-Doo 2 Monsters Unleashed. He also animated on Alvin and the Chipmunks 2 at Rhythm and Hughes. Eight years were spent at Sony Pictures Imageworks, animating on films like Open Season 1-3, through 3, Monster House, I Am Legend, Prince Caspian, Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs, Smurfs, Hotel Transylvania, and more. He's been an animation supervisor at Real Effects for seven years now, working on Book of Life, Rock Dog, Son of Jaguar, and now Scoob. And with those introductions out of the way, here's our conversation. Thank you guys so much for joining us. Again, I'm really sorry you guys don't get to celebrate and have that big in-person rap party. But nonetheless, congrats, you made a movie. That's such a huge deal. <laughs> Especially when you're talking about this movie. It's a, it's a big deal. It's oh, a long man. road. Like Bill and I have been working on this for, for five years. I feel like growing up, there was always an iteration of it. It's just never, it's never gone away. No, there's an iteration right now. I'm sure there's another one in the works. And, you know, there's, what is there, 18 or 19 separate series that have happened since 1969. It is a perennial, you know? Mm -hmm. And Tony, you've worked on Scooby for a long time. You know, you've worked with Warner Brothers. You've worked, you've done revivals for MGM. You've done revivals for Hanna-Barbera. How has that been kind of approaching stories and, and different characters that people know so well and like kind of having to keep them how we know them, but also reimagining them for new audiences. You know, I have a comfort level with Scooby-Doo that, that I think has helped a lot. I mean, maybe it's just because of time being spent with the characters, but also I, uh, I really like Scooby-Doo. It's got a whole bunch of things I like in it. So that's helped a lot. Like yeah. I love the mysteries and the, I love the characters in the comedy but I also love their dynamics and the dynamic within the characters. And I also, I love monsters and I like mysteries mm -hmm. and, you know, I like a lot, I lo like a lot of things that are all already in Scooby-Doo. Yeah. Cause I, I did notice of course that you, you've worked on it a lot. And then Bill, I don't know if this is accurate or not, but I saw an IMDb credit technically also the second live action Scooby-Doo film. <laughs> I, I did work on the second play. Yes, I did. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, uh, so I'm kind of the same, like me and Tony are a good match because we have the same sensibilities. I love mysteries, monsters, grew up with these characters and Warner Brothers characters. And yeah, um, I got an opportunity, uh, I was working more, more in visual effects at the time, but got a chance to work on the Scooby-Doo 2 with the company Giant Killer Robots. 
and they uh, were responsible for doing the, a lot, most of the monsters. So 10,000 volt ghost, I get to, you know, create him in 3D. So yeah, it was a really fun opportunity. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. So then, so this time around, obviously, then you got to work on the actual, the main characters. And I have to say for me, it was so fun watching Scooby, especially for the whole time I was like, oh, Scooby's so on model. Um, just like his pose. Like, I honestly, I felt like every animator had to have been given a packet of Takamoto sketches or just something. And I'm sure as the supervisor, you know, you, you had to, you had to like oversee that. You have no idea. Yeah, you have, you have really, you are so accurate. You have no idea how accurate you are. Yeah. <laughs> oh, Where do we start with that, Tony? I know, I know. It is a big... Uh, I'll tell you, in five years ago, when I was much more ignorant of this process, mm. I thought, hey, it's a model. It's a 3D model. And once we, have that, once we have that perfected, a character will always be on model because the model is the model, right? Oh, you know, oh, like no. it's an object. It's <laughs> not a drawing. I come from 2D. So being on model means a very different thing to me, but because you're trying to draw on models. But so I was thinking, well... <laughs> I could not have been more wrong. Like, and especially with Scooby. Scooby is the easiest character to go off model with than any of our characters. Mm -hmm. the, the one saving grace in that, honestly, like my background came from uh, working at Sony on some of their movies like Hotel Transylvania. And that was a movie very much like Scooby where the rig and the model is only going to get you so far. But Tony's going to ask me <laughs> to do things that are outside the limitations of that rig and we're going to, have to figure out a way to do it using you know deformers or whatever it might be sculpting in you know poses almost on every frame sometimes yeah. so i knew right away um i didn't want to want tony to feel limited by the rig or things like that what he draws we're gonna we're gonna get we're gonna create it and and try to get that spirit of whatever was in the 2d and, and certainly the spirit of what tony's going to ask for in our rig and model so no, I, I think, really I think about it like 2D than 3D. Yeah, it's a very 2D approach on top of 3D. And we had really capable rigs. They could do a lot. Mm -hmm. But there is so much sculpting <laughs> on, on top of these characters. Like so much. And, and so much being played to camera. You know, the, mm -hmm. all, of, all of the, especially Scooby and Dastardly, I'd say the most. We're moving everything to play to camera. So if, if you just moved five degrees off axis from what that camera sees, every face is all weird and distorted. Like we're moving everything around all the time. So mm -hmm. making an eye, if an eye looks too small, you know, making eyes bigger and smaller and bending noses and moving chins and moving cheeks. And it's pretty invisible when you're just watching the movie through the camera, but there is a lot going on on a frame by frame basis. Like, yeah. I feel like that's something else like audiences don't realize how much stuff like that messes with the lighting and the shadows too. Oh my gosh. The groom to the lighting to the, right. I know. Mm -hmm. And every movie does it to a degree. Sure. But Scooby-Doo, <laughs> <laughs> like the most distorted character. And, and I've told this story 10 million times and, and Bill is sick. Bill already knows. No, I love it. I, yeah. I wanted you to tell this. I know what you're going to say. <laughs> but it's true. Many, many years ago, when I was still working in Chicago, working like on, it was must have been on Animaniacs, John McClanahan had uh, worked at Hanna-Barbera in Australia and had lots of Hanna-Barbera friends and people would come over and visit. And I remember talking to one of the original animators, and I'm sorry, I forgot who it was, 
but he said, oh yeah, Scooby-Doo, he is the hardest. And he, Scooby, no in-between of Scooby-Doo looks right. No in-between drawing looks like Scooby-Doo. And he said, we used to always say, describing the in-betweening process of, of Scooby and traditional animation, he used to say, you would start with a key and on that first key, it, it would be Scooby-Doo, then it's a boot, then it's the, <laughs> then it's the kitchen sink, then it's a chicken, then it's Scooby-Doo. You know, like the two keys work. Everything in between doesn't work. And I always remembered that because I thought it was so funny. But then we got into 3D and man, it's um, the same, like, thing. Uh, same thing. Like Scooby-Doo between a three-quarter and a profile mm -hmm. is immediately off model no matter what you do. <laughs> like immediate, you can't linger in that pose because you're like, who is that weird you know, brown pig character, like his nose gets, I mean. Yeah. And then, you know, depending on what lens you're using for Scooby, that changes a bunch. We use a lot of wide angle lenses. So that would distort his face like crazy. And then if you go on a longer lens, then it put, crunches his face together. Yeah. There's so many things <laughs> that are happening all at once. That uh, five, Just five degree turn on his head would make an incredible difference. Yeah, that's amazing. Either on a model or, or off model. There are so many things we've never seen, mm -hmm. like 50 years of history and no one's ever seen the top of Scooby-Doo's head. Oh, and then, right, and then you're like, oh, and then when you see it, you're like, oh, don't show that. We don't even know who that is. Like, mm -hmm. get it, get away from that. And over the shoulder, like of the other character and you see Scooby in the, in the foreground and you see part of his face. We've never seen that. Right, yeah. But, but we have to figure out ways to do it. So yeah. it, it was some real interesting challenges. And, and so much stuff. But like Bill and I had to talk so much about the difference between screen space and 3D space. Mm -hmm. And what I mean is like screen space, what you see on a screen and where it's in the composition of the screen versus what is really happening in 3D on a 3D set with, a, with 3D models, 3D cameras, because Scooby looks great in a three-quarter pose and so does Shaggy. So sometimes when they're talking, you're like, yeah, they're not, in reality, they're not really even looking at each other. Like they're both looking off slightly into space. Like mm -hmm. no one would talk like this and then have to look this way. So trying to talk to 3D animators who are used to just living in a 3D space and go, oh no, turn their head three quarter and just shift their eyes. And they're like, but no one does that. And I'm like, <laughs> Scooby-Doo does that. Yeah. You know, like, <laughs> and we have to keep doing it, so. But one other thing that was kind of interesting on this show that the animators had a tough time wrapping their head around is we almost made Scooby and Shaggy, we wanted to create a connection between those two characters. So even in their performances, we would have them do things at exactly the same time. It's almost like they're sharing the same brain. Mm -hmm. and, and it would be symmetrical in, you know, across characters. Yeah. And the animator's like, no, Scooby needs to do this first and then Shaggy. No. Right, yeah, to be like, well, let me stagger the timing. It's like, stop, stop staggering the timing. It's like, but, but that's wrong. And I'm like, yeah, yes, and, and not for Scooby and Shaggy. Because there's a part of the story, you know, it's their friendship, they are, of one brain and then they're kind of not and then mm -hmm. they kind of are. So yeah. I'm like, we have to, we're doing all this on purpose, mm -hmm. you know? Kind of going back to something you said before, you were talking about the, the lenses and the, the 3D space versus the screen space. It felt very flat, but not in a bad way. Like it, I felt like I was looking at these stages, these set pieces, and I felt like you guys didn't really, you had a lot of up and down and side to side, but not as much Z depth in a lot of the staging. And I felt like there were so many matte paintings used to kind of 
create the illusion of depth, but the actual 3D space was kind of a little bit closer. And I didn't know what to even ask about that. But for me, it just, it felt so accurate, the the staging and just like the, the way that the, the story has always been told. And for, you know, either for budgetary reasons or otherwise with Hanna-Barbera, that like it always kind of had this more shallow depth of field. Yeah, that's definitely all just part of looking like Scooby-Doo. You yeah. Know, like it is a giant version of Scooby-Doo, but it's still Scooby-Doo. And, and also part of it is, Kind of the more action scenes have a lot more Z depth, you know. Z yes, depth action. yes. Yeah. But the comedy, this is cl- kind of classic cartoon comedy. I mean, mm-hmm. the way we there, we'll we'll talk about animation styles, but there are many animation styles active in this movie at the same time. Yeah. And Scooby and Shaggy have a very 1940s MGM. Like we didn't even. Oh, Jerry, yeah. Yeah, we went back for their animation style it reflects Tom and Jerry a lot more than it reflects Scooby-Doo, mm-hmm. you know, like, because and Bill and I talked about it. We're like, it's many of the same animators did both, but if you gave those animators time and money, what would they do? And mm-hmm. they would revert back to Tom and they would revert back to MGM. So we did a lot of Tom and Jerry studying for, um, in MGM style, Avery and Avery and Hanna-Barbera, from the from the M, from the MGM years because they both overlap so much as far as style goes, that is baked into Scooby and Shaggy. So when they're perform when they're doing their stuff, yeah, it kind of gets a little a little a little traditional staging because mm-hmm. it looks it looks the best and it plays for comedy the best. Yeah, no, it was cool. Like there was one scene where like the rest of the mystery gang is escaping from Dick Dastardly's ship. And it was just like this beautiful wide shot of them just running down a staircase. And I just was like, look at this set. Yeah. Just like I kind of was like yeah. imagining kind of those old, honestly, I kept thinking about the one shot from Wizard of Oz where they're walking towards the yellow brick road. And, that and, then looks, it's, and there are no matte paintings in that shot. What? Wow. Yeah, that's the thing. There are things that look like matte paintings that purposefully we always wanted. A, this is a stylized world. It's not real. It, we're not depicting reality. It's yeah. stylized world and having a painterly approach that's all Michael Korinsky our production designer making machines do things they shouldn't be doing Mm -hmm. and our and Jeff and and you know and our lighting soups it's everyone working to break the computers to make them do things they don't want to do there are no matte paintings in that Captain Caveman sequence wow it looks like it yeah it really does but there are none that's amazing I know it's funny because it's like, wouldn't it be easier to do with a matte painting? And you're like, I guess, but it wouldn't look like this. Like mm-hmm. th- those are 3D objects with very careful lighting. Mm-hmm. And I, I really like what you're saying because there has been a there's been a ton of effort into this to stylize this stuff, so it feels that way. And to your point about the different animation styles in there, like that was something too where. For me, it was watching and I was like, oh, Dick Dastardly should not be able to exist in the same universe as Simon yeah. Cowell and Scooby-Doo, you know, and, yes. and Captain Caveman. And I was like, but but I don't mind. <laughs> well, and, and Bill, jump in. We talked a lot about this and we, you know, I, I, it worried me for a long time. I was like, how is Dick Dastardly and Fred Jones going to be in the same yeah. <laughs> So radically different. And then, yeah, Simon throws Simon Cowell on top of that. And really, honestly, I think the answer, and it, it, it worried me for a long time, mm-hmm. but I just, I just went back to what Hanna-Barbera would do. I mean, and that's the thing is, 
the thing that separates this movie from for me from a lot of other things is I I knew all the people behind all this stuff. And I could almost, I could hear them in my head yelling at me for worrying about that. Yeah. You know, Ewo would never worry about that. I know for sure. Mm-hmm. Mr. Barbera would think I was crazy for, for worrying about that. And he was just like play to, they were all play to the character strengths. Yeah, it's, I feel like the characters are told us the, the way that yeah. we needed to go in a lot of times. We, I know. We, we spent a lot of time in the beginning um, looking at the, uh, the original content and trying to stay true to it as much as we could. And two things I really, I learned, well, one thing like we're talking about the, I knew that, that I, well, actually I was surprised at how uh, everybody thinks of Scooby-Doo as a cartoony show. And I was surprised when I really looked at it and analyzed it, how, how much more naturalistic kind of performances were actually in the original Scooby-Doo. And Scooby and Shaggy, of course, were, were a lot more cartoony and, and exaggerated, but I knew that they could live and exist in a naturalistic performance also. Mm-hmm. So that gave me confidence that we could actually do it. And also the other thing I really learned was Scooby-Doo is more bipedal than I anticipated. We, we, there for a long time, we thought we were going to have just a regular dog doing you know cartoony things, but mm-hmm. we actually meet and in the end had to build um, a bipedal version so he could do shoulder shrugs and act with his hands and actually have like cartoony dog hands. Yeah, he has yeah. two. It's almost like a, you know, like an action figure where you could snap different hands on. Mm-hmm. But And there's a quad rig and a bipedal rig. Oh, wow. And 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 there's paws and there's hands. Mm. And sometimes he has a hand and sometimes he has a paw. And sometimes in the same shot, you know, it's going from paw to hand back to paw. And like, it just looks right no one's really seeing that stuff mm-hmm. and we fig- we figured that out a little bit later than we probably should have there was a little bit of resistance to you know invest in creating a bipedal rig until i had to go back and prove like how many shots there was in the original episode that really had it we need to do this and tony was on board and then we actually did a shot of scooby or quad scooby trying to stand up eat a sandwich and shrug his shoulders and laugh and all that and the the poor animator that had to do it, I think he had to do like I don't know seventy sculpts in order to accomplish it. And well, so, that that TikTok video that's like blowing up right now, yeah, oh yeah, with the puppy Scooby, that's a quad rig. It is. Our poor animator had to re-sculpt every jo- you know the the amount of extra work that went into a quad rig having to do it get stand up and dance yeah i was gonna say and then you also had the puppy model of scooby too yeah yeah i like that i like the kid moment i also i feel like i also grew up more on a pup named scooby-doo that was one that was definitely sure constantly yeah. on and then of course i had watched all the originals too yeah that you know that's one thing i learned with scooby-doo working on scooby-doo is because this show has been on the air for 50 years, you need to know all the series because depending on when you grew up, that's gonna dictate what your favorite show was. Mm -hmm. And so you have to be aware of it and respectful of it. Cause like, I'm not a huge Scrappy-Doo fan and in in my brain, I think no one on earth is a Scrappy-Doo fan. I think that's fair. Uh, Right, no, it's not. There's a whole bunch of people that were six years old the first time they saw Scrappy-Doo and love Scrappy-Doo. And I'm like, what? (laughs) <laughs> it's like my my niece once said uh when the when uh these new star wars movies came out because mm-hmm. she when she grew up i was like hey you're gonna go see uh force awakens and she said no i'm not gonna see that 
Queen Amidala is not even in it, and she's the best character. Oh man! Oh my gosh! Like, what? <laughs> Wow. <laughs> but that's her favorite character. Like yeah. Padme is her favorite character. That's her, that's her Ray. That's her Princess Leia. I know for me, one of the big ones growing up was there was a movie, there was Scooby-Doo on Zombie Island. And I remember yeah. my um, my child brain exploded because that was for me, that was the first other than I mean, and later on I think I saw the Vincent Price series, but like that was the first one that the the monsters and the magic and this it was real you know? And that was like such a plot twist. So was that like a debate that you, I know we're going a little into spoiler territory here. Not, well, um, I've had this debate a long time ago. Yeah, I know. Spoilers, spoiler alert. But um, Zombie Island changed everything. Mm -hmm. Zombie Island changed everything. If there's one thing that changed Scooby-Doo from 1969, it goes 1969 to Zombie Island. Mm -hmm. Zombie Island changed everything. Zombie Island was great. I love it. Yeah. Right. It's great. It's so good. And, <laughs> And uh, and ever since Zombie Island, everyone is okay with sometimes it's real, sometimes it's not. Mm -hmm. Now, if you grew up pre-Zombie Island, you're still probably from the, it's a, a real estate investor in a rubber mask, you know, yeah. uh, school. But we live in a post-Zombie Island world, so mm -hmm. I think it's okay. Yeah, for me, it was, it was interesting because that is, I think, one of the struggles, too, of adapting an older property of just, there's only so high you can raise the stakes in that universe and and based on the like the principles and what you could do you know a few decades ago versus what audiences expect today right well i i've also learned from scooby-doo that the stakes if it's funny because if you play the stakes seriously people go along for the ride like mm -hmm. we made a video called camp scare right uh scooby-doo camp scare and we were like this is straight up a friday the 13th movie we played it if that guy, he was an axe murderer, and if that guy hit them with that axe, they would die. And it's pretty scary. It's pretty much a Friday the 13th movie, except he never makes contact with his axe. But he is absolutely trying to kill those kids for the entire, you know, for, for the whole length of the movie. Mm -hmm. And you kind of go along with it. You know, you kind of go, oh, they better get out of there because this guy means business. And, yeah. and even in this movie, we are playing so fast and loose with the stakes, but I, th I think you still feel them. I think you feel the physical stakes for characters who honestly have no physical stakes because they're cartoon characters. Mm -hmm. um, but then we leaned even more heavily into the emotional stakes, which I think that the heart of it is yeah. pretty strong. Yeah, they're, they're bond and yeah. just like the group as a whole too. Yeah. Um, and then, and the, one, the one nice thing, on, on, like we have so many characters in this movie and really everybody has something to offer. It's not like, you know, everybody's just generic and going along for the ride. Like, like I think there's interesting facts about every character and, and they have a role in this movie. Yeah, everyone's got their moment. And I really like that. Like in the gang, everyone's really got their moment. I, I was talking to a journalist yesterday who his favorite part of the movie was Daphne's kind of moment. And mm -hmm. I was like, that's great. That's great because... We really tried to make sure that everyone has at least one beat where you, it, because there is a world whose favorite character is Daphne. There's a yeah. world whose mm -hmm. favorite character is Velma and there is even a world for Fred. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you gotta, you gotta serve everything. And he was tough. He was a tough character because there wasn't that much to go on from the original. That's why if, from series to series, Fred almost changes the most. Yeah, <laughs> that's fair. 
<laughs> I was going to ask what what then was I mean I understood emotionally what the decision was but what was what was the decision to make Blue Falcon Blue Falcon's son and not the original Blue Falcon? Well, yeah, go for it, Bill. Oh no, no, go ahead because that's more of a story point then. Yeah, I guess from story wise, the decision was we have three human dog relationships in the movie. We yeah. Have, you know, and how are they different? How are they, how are they different from each other? How are they the same from each other? Where could we go with these three relationships? And there was something nice about this Brian Dynamut relationship where Brian, where Dynamut really was almost like Brian's surrogate father. Yeah, I'd say the father figure. Right. Someone said this, it's not really true, but it sounds good. Like, that the three relationships are the three stages of any relationship. Like Scooby and Shaggy are in the honeymoon phase where they're still, they're still like can't stand being apart. Dynamite and, and Brian Falcon are just maintaining, they get on each other's nerves, but um, they're doing their best to just hold steady. Um, and then Dastardly and Muttley are at the end of a relationship where, where you're just constantly constantly arguing and sniping but you're still in a relationship yeah so. no honestly i love that he he still like ran to him first i was like oh my god i, I care about dick dastardly i was so mad well that was a lot there's a lot of talking about that how do we do that what do we do with Dastardly? i'd say dastardly because i mean i love the original dick dastardly but he is literally a mustache twirling you know silent movie villain you yeah know, he's, he's based on you know the professor fate character from from the great race that jack lemon played but how, where are we going to go with him and what were, how are we going to deepen it? And a lot of it was, you know, working with the writers. Adam Zekiel was, was huge on that. And, um, and also with Jason Isaacs. Jason and I, we talked a lot about that character because how to humanize him and how to give him uh, a motive. His motivation isn't evil. Mm -hmm. It's, it's his, his uh, method of achieving his goal is evil. But right. he just, he's a guy who just wants his dog back. And his, his intentions are actually good. Right, his right. He just wants his dog back, and without getting too deep into the, you know, this movie. But Dastardly and Muttley are the shadow version of Scooby and Shaggy. Mm -hmm. right? They they both are bond. Their their bond is equally intense. Scooby and Shaggy are the light. They are the dark. So mm -hmm. that's kind of how we just thought of them and played them. Yeah, it was interesting because it. I was kind of like, oh, cool. Are we doing a Hanna Barbera cinematic universe? Not to always go there, but obviously, like with with the other characters as well. Um, yeah, no, that definitely is a cinema. I mean, we that definitely is a, a cinematic universe. And luckily, HB already made them. You know, mm -hmm. like they loved mixing their characters up. Yeah, so there's such a precedent for it that it doesn't feel forced or unnatural. One of the animation things with Dastardly, which was really interesting, his design is such a prominent design and very strong. One of the things we noticed when we were testing was kind of the same thing with Scooby. Certain angles work better than other angles. So um, Tony and I kind of went back to classic uh, Shere Khan uh, with, with Mill Call oh, and, look, yeah. and looked at, well, what's the, like, why is Shere Khan so strong of a, a character? We looked at the head angles they were using to display this incredible face and performance. And we tried to do that same thing with Dastardly where no matter what the angle was, we tried to look, is there a better angle that we can display this, this cool face? So that, that was kind of a thing with that character. And, he, and again, he didn't work from all angles. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and Bill, you know, the, Bill and I were always like, there are three main animation influences in oh, Dastardly. Yeah. And, and really, animators had to become very familiar with Milk Call, 
Richard Williams and Chuck Jones. Yeah. Because dastardly is a weird combination of the three of those, <laughs> you know, of the three of those styles. But he really is. So yeah. if you look at like Thief and the Cobbler, which is mm-hmm. one of the ones we looked at a lot, and just the way the mouth just never does Grinch like yes. never stops and his expression always moves. I mean, maybe we didn't go quite as far as that, but but that but, was but definitely wasn't it like Dastardly, if Dastardly's face really kind of, it's always a moving hold. If it ever really stopped, it just turned into a big plastic head. So yeah. it's like, you got to keep playing with that flesh. And those fingers, you know, the oh, Richard, Richard Williams fingers yeah. as mm-hmm. much as we could. <laughs> and on top of naming three huge 2D animators, then having to also translate that into 3D on top of everything else. I know, we would do stuff like, and we would hear stuff too, like, well, we'd honestly, like, like, right, we'd be like, hey, go look at Shere Khan. Yeah. And then it'd be like, well, Shere Khan's a tiger. <laughs> Shere Khan's not a tiger. He's a character. Go look at Shere Khan. You know, I remember once, right, there's a scene where like, look at Pepe Le Pew. He's, this is kind oh, of yeah. a Pepe Le Pew. Well, Pepe Le Pew's a skunk. Yeah. <laughs> He's not a skunk. He's a weird little man who's shaped like a skunk. I, I kind of said this last night, like, but, but so much of this movie was kind of Tony and I. Um, trying to fit in so much of the stuff we love in animation yeah. Yeah. and love about movies. You know, it, it, we were constantly bringing up these references that we had to explain to the animators and uh, and try to fit in in performances. There's a yeah, lot and of Easter eggs in performances. Yeah. And Mustang Python. Yeah. Pointy teeth. Yeah. Even before really even looking too much into the production of the movie, it was so clearly made by fans. Even just, again, for me, it was like the Takamoto bowling Messick oh, Mountain, yeah. you know, some of the street signs of the arcade, you had Hong Kong Fui on an arcade cabinet, you know, and Jabberjaw. And I was like, what? I love this. And I was, again, I have to keep being like, no, like you, this is what you do on the rewatch. Yeah, I know. All of that stuff is everything. Like, if you, the more closely you look, the more stuff you're going to find. It is ridiculously you can't even say Easter eggs because they're they're just eggs. Yeah. Like, they're just everywhere. <laughs> yeah. No, it's very fun. Even uh, like just right at the beginning, you guys had that montage of just you know homages to just like these really iconic shots and things. And I was just like, oh, this was this was made by a bunch of fans. Like you know, oh, it's yeah. just, that's just so nice when you can feel that so clearly too. But what at the end of the movie, you know, like at the very end when when everything's kind of resolved and they're all kind of back together, we're like. That's the mo- that is the main model sheet pose from 1969. 100%. It is one for one that, because I'm like, that pose has been on a thousand lunchboxes and a thousand backpacks <laughs> and a thousand, yeah. and it's burned into the collective consciousness yeah. that that's what they should look like. And Tony, you, you actually got to work with Takamoto and, uh, and Hanna-Barbera. Yeah, I mean, we, Spike, Brandt, and I, Spike and I did a lot of Looney Tunes stuff for a long time, and Spike's doing Space Jam 2 now, so like we yeah. continue to do uh, Looney Tunes stuff. Spike and I, in, in 1989, probably bonded over our love of MGM cartoons first, but pr- from a personal basis, we really did know, you know, we got to know all those people. We produced Joe Barbera's last theatrical Tom and Jerry cartoon which Spike animated about 95% of himself, you know, like, so we got really close with them. And so there's a lot of personal, there's a lot of personal experience and personal feeling behind Hanna-Barbera stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, 
I love all the Easter eggs that they're all really fun and everyone contributed to them within the production. Anyone who could come up with it, you know, like so many Easter eggs. Yeah. But my favorite ones are the ones that mention the people, right? Yeah. That mention the cast, that mention the artists. They're, they're right there from the beginning. Mm -hmm. You know, when, when you meet little Shaggy and he's in front of a place called Casey's Creations, mm -hmm. you know, I'm happy about it. That's what yeah. makes me personally yeah. happy. Casey Kasem. Yeah. And, and I knew these, I knew all these people. Even Casey Kasem, like, uh, you kind of want to make them happy, even if they're not with us anymore. And we, and we did that in animation, too. Like, a lot of the, like Tony alluded to it, the crew that started on Scooby-Doo was the same crew from Tom and Jerry. Mm -hmm. So yeah. I know that they didn't have budget to do what they would have done on the, on the MGM cartoon. So I always ask myself, I mean, you know, when a shot went through, you know, of course, I, I need Tony's approval on it. But I'm also asking myself, would Irv Spence agree with this shot what do you yeah is this the way he would have done it or ed love ray or, patterson i mean yeah ray was one of the first people who spike and i a long time ago we we tried to make this movie this three musketeers movie uh tom and jerry three musketeers movie mm -hmm. and and we didn't know how to pitch it really and we didn't really even have a story other than a three musketeers you know a musketeers kind of movie mm -hmm. but we animated a tr fake trailer for it and it was i think right at the end of iron giant or something it was it was at a time when there was like it was a lot of downtime for a lot of artists and for a lot of equipment so spike and i kind of snuck in there and had a whole bunch of people and it was awesome like you can't we did this awesome trailer and it, the, the the last what, five shots were in full production feature production and uh <laughs> Jean McCurdy actually yelled at us because she thought we spent like half a million dollars on it, but we did it all in secret. <laughs> um, but that was the thing that that trailer, Ray Patterson's daughter brought that to Ray, who was one of the original Tom and Jerry animators, and he was like, hey, these guys actually know what they're doing. This looks like Tom and Jerry. Oh, mm -hmm. And then he was the guy who was like, go show that to Ewo. We didn't want to show it to Ewo. <laughs> but he made us and then we showed it to Ewo and then Ewo went, let's go show this to Mr. B. And we were like, oh, <laughs> but that's kind of what kicked it off. And so after that, and this is a long time ago, like uh, it was called the mouse in the iron mask. Now, mm -hmm. And uh, ever since then we were like in their world and yeah. it was fun. Maybe we should make the mouse in the iron mask. Right. It was pretty cool. <laughs> so you heard it here first. But, um, <laughs> No, that's just exciting, too, because I'm like a tiny bit too young to have ever have had even like a chance to really talk to some of the people who when we think of founders and, yeah. and like the pioneers were at the point where a lot of them, you know, passed away in the last 20 years or so. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like those stories are like even just those little non seemingly non important stories are so important too, just for the sake of preserving their their work. Yeah. And you know what? They didn't know what they they didn't realize that they were making classics. Yes, that's so true. You know, they didn't realize that they were cranking out classics, which mm -hmm. is really what they were doing. And they were just making TV shows as fast as they could, mm -hmm. you know? <laughs> and, uh, and you know, I've talked to Ruby Spears. We've talked a lot, you know, in the past when we were working on Mystery Incorporated, we talked, Spike and I talked a lot to them about it and tried to get in their heads and what would you have done? And they were always like, wow, you guys are doing a lot of things we would have done if we had thought of it or if we had the time. Hmm. So it was always I good. Feel like, I feel like that's the best way of preserving their work is we're, we're, 
we're just following through with they with what they already started. Yeah. Yeah, like I said, like the conflicting styles. It, there was a long time we, where we didn't know if that was going to work, and it, and it. But really, honestly, I could hear Ewell just telling me, "Stop worrying about that." Mm -hmm. You know, and, and it's true. We we have a we have a naturalistic fight fighting character with Dee Dee fighting Captain Caveman, who's a Looney Tunes character. Yes, and it works beautiful. It does. <laughs> yeah, he was so much fun. Captain Caveman was so much fun. Uh, Dynamut, his neck, and that must have been fun too. It was fun. Like we talked about early on, like that Dynamut. Like in the old cartoons, he could extend his limb. We were like, no, he, he doesn't need to think to do it. You know, it's not like I need to anticipate back and then throw my arm forward. It's like, no, he just reaches for something. It just happens to be across the room, but mm -hmm. it's, it's, uh, it's unconscious behavior. So that was kind of fun to play with that. It gave him a whole different style of movement. Tony kind of put that challenge out to us really early on. Like if Dynamite has to do the simplest task, like get something from across the room, how would he do it? And he wouldn't just run over there and get it. He would use these limbs effortlessly and not even thinking about it. And Bill and I threw a lot of challenges at animators <laughs> like that, okay. like, right? Like uh, it's making me think of like, we would talk about how does Vel if Velma walks into a room, what does she do? If Daphne walks into that same room, what is Daphne doing? Because they're not doing the same thing. Mm -hmm. and, and it really forced people to think. I mean, it's fun. That's the secret of animation. Bill, did you have a favorite character to kind of try to figure out? Um, they were, they were all really fun. Um, it would probably have to be Scooby just yeah. because that's where we started. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I, I love that character from the start to finish. I mean, there was definitely issues and, and it, it was a long haul project over five years. So there was probably times when we probably just should have scrapped everything and started over and we kind of added on top. So things got a little bit more complex, but it was a fun challenge, man. I, I love anything that's that hasn't been done before and, and you got to figure it out and, and you want it to look cool and make it cool. I, I love, and Scooby was that. Bill and I and Karinsky and Allison Abadi, we all did a, a presentation at Annecy a few years ago mm -hmm. where we showed everyone all the Scooby-Doo's. Oh yeah. Right, because you look at Scooby-Doo and you're like, there's Scooby-Doo, he looks just like Scooby-Doo. Over the course of two years, three years, we built a hundred different Scooby that some of them look nothing like, like we went all the way around the world to come back to Scooby-Doo. So we, yeah. we did a presentation where we showed that process and it was like, well, why didn't you just start here? And it's like, well, that's not how you make things. Mm -hmm. You know, you have, you have to explore. <laughs> and, and sometimes you explore and you come right back. Mm -hmm. yeah. But if you don't do that exploration, you won't end up with the same results. So there's a lot of, the ghosts of all those other Scooby-Doo's are in this Scooby-Doo and we yeah. learned a lot. We learned a lot along the way just to come back to go, how do we make Scooby? Part of it, like Bill said too, and it's if there's one thing I that I think is super important when you're doing things like this, it's just listen to the characters. The characters will tell you what to do. Just block everything out and listen to them. And that's really a big part of the, the secret. Like Scooby-Doo has always been contemporary sure. so because because i'm sure there are people that are like oh like i don't know how i feel about the the like humor and the pop culture references and for me i'm just like have you ever watched scooby-doo yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, right? oh man i cannot stop with a i mean watch mystery incorporated sometimes we'd have seven 
pop culture references happening at the same time. Like, yeah. there's no show on earth that is more full of pop culture references. Like, that thing is loaded. It's part of what we all like. We don't hide our references. Mm-hmm. You know, like, I'm like, they're not subtle. You could just yeah. look and go, where's, oh, yeah, that's this. And like, I, you know, I think I've, I'm from the remix generation, I'm from the, the generation that took other people's music and sampled it and just put it to a different beat. But that's that's why it's never gone away. Like a lot of the Hanna-Barbera characters even, like there's a reason, like I feel like Scooby-Doo is kind of one of the ones that people know right away and they don't necessarily know some of these older ones. No, they don't. And I think that's okay, but we know the older ones. I do like that the original Blue Falcon, the Gary Owens Blue Falcon, exists in this universe yeah you know, he retired but he's there and when shaggy was a kid his blue falcon was that blue falcon like yeah the toys that are on his dresser there i mm-hmm. mean those are all from the original show like that's the original falcon car is a toy and that's yeah. you know like yeah that all that stuff exists Hannah Barbera has such a huge catalog yeah and that, i mean there's there's stuff all over like that in check out that arcade scene again like when they're yeah. in the, when they're in the arcade in the amusement park because every video game is something else and yeah. there's we don't in, we didn't invent very much every poster on the wall like there's a hex girls poster yeah so i mean we just use what we got also actually one question i was just thinking about too for bill the the adorable robots that transform the rottens yeah Trying to think about that, I'm I'm not an animator, but like just looking at those, like those just gave me a headache. So like kudos. <laughs> um, you know, it's funny because they they almost didn't make it into the movie. Therefore, yeah, there was years when we invented the rottens and then we put them aside. There was like rottenless years where the rotten. Then it, then it was uh, I think it was Chris Columbus who was like, those things are cute. And, we're like, hey. <laughs> and, and one of the things that kind of helped save them, I think, um, Tony, you probably. To speak to this but we did a lot of tests early on and i kind of just let the animators you know get creative like let's see some transformations with these things how they can go from this cute baby into a scorpion or and, and just do baby things out of them uh how cute can we make them when they're waddling and walking and we, so we did a lot of exploratory tests that kind of sold their character you know and, mm-hmm. and it was a lot of cheats it was like pulling parts from different places and like Transformers, you know, it, it doesn't all mechanically actually make sense, mm-hmm. but we're faking it and being creative on, on, on how it gets there and trying, just trying to make it believable that it, it's and, a true. And I think, I think we all really love the idea of that they're cute and nasty at the same time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they're cute and then they're these vicious little monsters with chainsaws for hands, so. Yeah. <laughs> cute and creepy, that's the, my two favorite things, so. Like you were saying before then, like that led to that really sweet moment with Daphne as well. Oh. Yeah, yeah. I really like the way Daphne's portrayed in the movie and I love, I like the way the whole gang is portrayed and I really like this cast. I know the cast is different. I love the traditional cast as well. Mm-hmm. But this movie was different. It was always supposed to be a, a separate universe from that universe. They really did a great job. I really like it. It's different, and I get it, but it's supposed to be different. Yeah. I hope people realize how much this is like a love letter to Hanna-Barbera and to kind of animation in general. Like, mm-hmm. I, I do feel like if there was an opportunity here to kind of let it all out, show all the stuff we like, mm-hmm. you know? There's so much Ray Harry. We didn't even talk about Ray Harry. Oh, yeah. There's Harry <laughs> House in this, too. <laughs> yes. Oh, it's funny, like, Tony, Tony, like, when, oh, sorry, but when that shot came up and you're like, 
Bill, do you think we should do the Harry House in? And all the hammers look. And I knew immediately what you were talking about. And everybody was like, I have no idea. And we had to point them to clips. Wait, was this a specific part in the movie? Yeah, there's a specific. Well, Cerberus has a lot of, we talked a lot about Harryhausen in the animation of Cerberus. Yeah. Um, but there is one shot that is a very specific, sh call, you know, shout out to Ray Harryhausen. Okay. Um, and and uh, I'm not even, I'm not going to tell you what it is because I want to see who picks up on it. Cody didn't even <laughs> mention the shot. I knew what he talking about. But you know what? Like all the all our animators know all this history now. Like, because yeah. we would like start reviews. We're like, let's watch. Yeah. Let's, let's watch Mysterious Island for twenty minutes and mm -hmm. stuff like that. So that was kind of dailies almost. Yeah, I know. I know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Do you ever yeah. stop learning stuff no. about animation? Like, sometimes I think like, oh, I must know everything, and then you find out there was some animator in the in the 50s who was working in Bulgaria that you didn't know about and then you see it and you're like blown away and then all of a sudden you know I get so fascinated by that kind of stuff and then into it like it just happens again and again and again so mm -hmm. that was like I'm telling that was such like a nice way to end it almost but also, <laughs> but also, also I want to keep talking so like I, I mean for me I just love hearing stories because it's like every movie of course has its it's ups and downs and it's in its challenges. And for me, it's just like any movie being made is just like such an effort. So for me, it's, I just appreciate all the work that goes into it. We started saying our goodbyes a couple of times throughout this interview, being asked to wrap up, only for Tony or Bill to start sharing another funny story. Finally, we said goodbye for real. So thank you again, Tony and Bill, and congrats on the release of Scoop. Here's another virtual toast to the crew that worked on this film. And thank you for listening. Be sure to check out cartoonbrew.com for the latest news and updates. Until next time. <laughs>